Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Wild View on Blueberries, a podcast by Prania to support the wild blueberry industry's development and growth. I am your host Hulu, wild blueberry specialist at Prania. The average yield in Nova Scotia's wild blueberry fields is around 2,000 pounds per acre. Some fields can reach 6,000 pounds per acre or even higher. You must wonder if there's a secret recipe to produce blueberries at higher yield. If your fields are actively managed and in production for the last several years, it means at least you have a potentially good site for a higher yield. Some basic management for better and higher yield includes adequate weed control and protection measures against diseases. If you have donors, the pollination will be your next investment and it helps to increase yield dramatically. Today, we are going to focus on pollination in wild blueberries. Our guest today is Dr. Frank Drummond. Dr. Drummond retired from the University of Maine a year ago. He is a professor in insect ecology and insect pest management. Before retirement, he did a lot of work in wild blueberries, focusing on wild blueberry production, blueberry plant reproductive ecology, and pollination. Dr. Drama is experienced in wild blueberry pollination and we will hear what Dr. Drama has to say about pollination in wild blueberries. Hello, Dr. Drama. Thank you for joining us today and sorry to bring you back to work after retirement. I appreciate your time. So first of all, Dr. Drama, can you please give an introduction about yourself and what did you research in the past? First of all, thank you very much, Hugh, for inviting me. It's, it's a pleasure, and I, I love speaking to blueberry growers. I have just recently retired about a year ago from the University of Maine after being a professor there for 30 years. I was in the School of Biology and Ecology where I taught entomology and insect ecology, and I was also had a cooperative extension appointment in blueberry insect pest management and pollination. Um, my research uh, in those 30 years covered pollination, bee biology, insect pest ecology and biology, selection of uh, least toxic insecticides for management of insect pests. And I also spent quite a bit of time researching the plant side of pollination while I was there. So you have a broad interest of all those areas in the plant science. Oh, that's great. So today we are going to focus on pollination in wild blueberries and we hope to bring your knowledge and experiments to growers about this critical component in wild blueberry production. So why is pollination so critical to blueberry production? Well, it really starts with the anatomy of the blueberry flower. And the blueberry flower is structured in a special way that the surface called the stigma that receives pollen to fertilize the eggs and result in fruit, it actually grows longer than the anthers or the pollen producing organs. And because of this, uh, blueberries really cannot be pollinated by raindrops falling on the petals or wind blowing them. 
they really need an insect to place pollen on the stigma. This is why pollination is critical to blueberry production because without pollination, blueberries, wild blueberries, low bush blueberries are not capable of producing fruit without mm -hmm. fertilization of the eggs in the flowers, the ovules. Whereas in high bush blueberry, there are actually some cultivars that you can get production of fruit without pollination, but with wild blueberries, that's not really possible. And so really pollination is the whole basis for fruit production and yield in blueberries. Mm -hmm. So it is in many ways, the most critical process in production of blueberries. So is blueberries are safe pollinated or close pollinated? Blueberries, mostly, most of low bush blueberry plants are what they call obligate outcrossers, meaning that they have to have pollen placed on their stigma from another plant. But we found, at least in Maine, that about 20% of plants in your blueberry field actually can pollinate themselves. If, if insects collect the pollen off the anthers and then place it on the stigma in the same flower or on a different flower, but on the same stem, then this can result in self-pollination. Mm -hmm. And what we find actually is that while most blueberry plants require cross-pollination, and that usually is due to bees or some other insects, but mostly bees moving pollen from one plant to another, mm -hmm. that there are 20% of these plants that can self-pollinate. And as it turns out, these plants are what we call universal mothers, and they yeah. can accept pollen from any plant with a high degree of success of fertilization. And mm -hmm. not only that, but they tend to be higher yielders. Okay. And they also tend to be some of the earlier clones that you have in your field that bloom. And so while these sulfurs don't make up the majority of your plants, they are the earliest. Those early ones capture all the early bees that are in the field because none of the other plants are flowering yet. And they tend to be the higher yielders. And so they can be a very significant component of your yield. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't go to say that the other 80 to 85% of the plants aren't important. They're just as important but they require cross-pollination. Okay, so the safe pollinated blueberry plants actually produce earlier and better yields than cross-pollinated plants? Generally, on it, you know, everything is sort of on average, but on average, yes, because you, if you think about it, a self-pollinated plant, when a, when a bee visits them, they may get pollinated with pollen from outside, but at the same time, if the bee is collecting pollen from that flower, it's getting an exodose of its own pollen. And so it's getting sort of more pollen per bee visit <laughs> than an outcrossing plant. So mm -hmm. they can be really, you know, sort of, as I said, we call these, these universal mothers or these sort of super, super mm -hmm. pollinated plants in the field. Okay. So do you know what are the critical windows or the days and duration, once blueberry flowers are open, the 
pollination should occur to be able to produce fruits? Yeah, so it's a, so flowers have a specific longevity. And most people, when they think of sort of how long a flower lives, they think about from when it first opens to when the petals actually fall. But in the process of pollination, it's actually a much shorter window. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that it's the stigma surface, that surface that pollen lands on to initiate pollination, that the stigma is viable up to from like seven to 10 days. And it tends to be temperature dependent so that the flowers last less time when you have really hot weather than when it's very cool weather. But it's usually seven to 10 days. And for the first three to four days, um, you have the highest probability of pollination if pollen is put on the stigma. And then it drops off rapidly from three to four days to seven to 10 days. So when you're at about seven to 10 days, when pollen is put on the stigma, there's a very, very low percentage of mm -hmm. those pollens will actually grow down the style and fertilize the ovules and you'll get fruit. Yeah. So this seven to 10 day sort of pollination window is much shorter than the average length of time that the petals hold on, which might be 20 days. So a lot of times you might walk through your fields and think that these flowers are still quite viable, but if they're older than seven to 10 days old, they're, they're probably, they're, they're no longer uh, functioning to produce flowers. Bees may still visit them for nectar, mm -hmm. but they really won't be producing very many fruit. So that, it, that means it's important for the growers to visit and monitor their fields and see the plant development stages to make sure they don't miss the most important critical windows for pollination in their blueberry plants. Yeah. Yes, and but one thing that is <laughs> uh, a grower should keep in mind that, so if you have a really hot spring, and we're getting sort of more and more of those these days mm -hmm. that the flowers will go by faster. And if you have the same number of bees in your field in a cool spring than you do in a hot spring, the flowers might go by faster and you may not get as high a pollination level. Mm -hmm. um, another thing though, on the flip side, if you have a really cool spring and let's say the temperatures that are actually in the you know, sort of above freezing, but very, very cool, those flowers will not age and, and they'll remain viable, almost like they're in a suspended animation until mm -hmm. the temperatures warm up again. And then when the bees start flying, they can place the pollen on the stigmas and you'll get pollination. So those plants will just sit there ready until it gets warm again. So if mm -hmm. you have a long extended cool period, the growers shouldn't have to worry that, gee, we're missing pollination window that yeah. the window will still be there. Yeah, exactly. So with the climate change and then we are experiencing different springs in different years like here, we are talking about the growers. They are all asking, uh, they're always asking, how can I achieve better, higher yields? And as my management, such as weed control and disease management, I all hear people say the pollination will guarantee a solid yield after growers do the basics. Do you think that is true from your point of view? Well, as it turns out, that's a, a very complicated question. 
And so there, there are several things to consider. Maybe the first thing I'll talk about is that pollination is not just a yes or no phenomena. For, so what I mean by that is a flower is not either pollinated or it is not pollinated, but there are different levels of pollination. And this is dependent upon the number of viable pollen grains that are placed on the stigma. And so what may happen is you could have about six pollen grains placed on the stigma, and you may have about a 25% chance with six pollen grains that that flower will become a fruit. If you have 12 pollen grains plant, uh, placed on the stigma, it works out that it's about a 50% chance that that flower becomes a fruit. And if you have 30 pollen grains placed on the stigma, you're, you're getting up to sort of 70% chance. But also the level of pollination determines the numbers of eggs or ovules in the flower that are fertilized. And that determines the numbers of seeds in the berry. And the numbers of seeds in the berry has two consequences. Berries with lots of seeds on average tend to be bigger than berries mm -hmm. that received less pollination that have fewer seeds. Mm -hmm. Also, berries that received less pollen on the stigma and have fewer seeds tend to drop off the plant in June and July before you harvest. And mm -hmm. so the level of pollination affects fruit drop and it affects the size of the berry. So that's important. But also another factor that will affect your ultimate yield is numbers of flowers in your field relative to the numbers of bees. And so if growers use fertilizer and they prune either in the fall or early in the spring and not too late and can produce a maximum number of flower buds, the chance of a higher potential yield is greater, but mm -hmm. that's balanced by the numbers of foraging bees that you have in the field. Because mm -hmm. if you have two fields and one has, you know, 3 million flowers per acre and another one has 8 million flowers per acre, but you have the same number of bees, there may just not be enough bees to set the majority of those flowers. And mm -hmm. so it may not be a payoff to invest in fertility to promote more flower buds um, for mm -hmm. bloom. So it's sort of, if you're going to have a strategy where you're really trying to uh, produce more flower buds, then you have to think about, well, will I have enough bees to set those flowers? Yeah. So it's, it's sort of a, a, a complicated equation, but in general, if you have a high level of pollination and growers manage their fields for pests and irrigate if, if it's dry, if they can irrigate, generally um, high levels of pollination will result in high yields. But of course, there are always things that we can't control, mm -hmm. you know, droughts if you can't irrigate you know, frost during pollination, you know, diseases that maybe are difficult to control. Uh, so, so it's always sort of an uncertainty. And in general, in Maine, we found out that 
about sort of anywhere from 25 to 50% of the variation in the yield that you harvest is due to pollination. Just because you have great pollination, it's not necessarily the case that you will have a superior yield. It's a good chance, but, but just something like uh, when you harvest, some growers harvest early um, and maybe because of the processor or maybe because of spotted wing drosophila that might attack later, they harvest early, but they're harvesting more green fruit and that's mm -hmm. a direct fruit loss. And so yeah. even if you had high levels of pollination, if you have 20% green fruit, you're sort of, <laughs> you're kind of getting hit on your yield at that end. So it's, yeah. it's a complicated scenario, but, but in general, put it this way, the reverse is undoubtedly true. If you have very poor pollination, you will never have great yields. It yeah. just will not happen. <laughs> so. And from your data, you say uh, in Maine, 25% to 50% variation that can contribute by pollination. That's a big part of the whole management, management system. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, great. That's a very good um, point in there. So who are the major groups of pollinators in wild blueberry production or pollination? Okay. Well, you know, blueberries, because of the way they, they bloom, you have this mass flowering crop. And even before we started managing blueberries, the sort of wild landscapes of blueberries for thousands of years have been attracting animals that either feed on pollen or nectar. And so there are a lot of animals that visit flowers. And Chris Cutler in Nova Scotia had found that uh, nocturnal flying moths may be a source of pollination for blueberries. And, and there are probably lots of insects and hummingbirds that we really don't know a lot about their contribution, but, but mm -hmm. generally we can say that the bees are the primary pollinators. Mm -hmm. And of that, there are some important groups of bees. Most of them are native bees that uh, sort of evolved with blueberry. And so we have as groups, the bumblebees, and they're very important because they fly large distances so that they can visit blueberries from quite a distance from their nest. At the time of, of uh, most of bloom, it's entirely queens. Sometimes we have years where toward the end of bloom, you start to get some of the workers because bumblebees are social and they live in colonies, but early in the spring, the colony has not built up and it's just the queen. But they are highly efficient pollinators because they have a behavior called buzz pollination, which they actually shake the flower and they can shake out pollen uh, that some insects don't have access to out of the mm -hmm. blueberry flower. So bumblebees are very important and they're extremely important in cold weather because bumblebees can create their own heat. And in general, insects are only as active as the temperature. So as it gets mm -hmm. warmer, insects get more active, but bumblebees can generate their own heat. And I've seen them fly in blueberry fields during a snowstorm wow. and pollinate flowers. So they serve a very important niche. Another group of bees are called the sand digging bees. The scientific name of their family are called the Andrenids. 
but these sand diggers nest in a lot of bare earth areas in our fields or on the edges of fields, along the edges of um, field roads. And they dig holes. And unlike bumblebees, they are called solitary, that each female um, collects pollen and lays her own eggs. And then the larvae develop on their own underground. But yeah. some of these solitary bees, even though they're solitary, they live in big communal areas. And so you may get hundreds and hundreds of nest holes and hundreds and hundreds of female bees all in one area that then can go out and pollinate uh, blueberry flowers. And these bees also are very adept at crawling in the flowers and vibrating the flowers and, and getting pollen out of the flowers. They also fly at somewhat cool temperatures, not as cool as bumblebees, and they get more active as the temperature increases. And the next important group of pollinators are what are called the sweat bees. And the sweat mm -hmm. bees are the most numerous in terms of species. There are 30 to 40 species uh, potentially in blueberry regions. And most of these also nest in the soil. Most of them are um, solitary and they're even smaller than the sand digging bees. And some of them, some of these sweat bees are a bright metallic blue or green or glossy black. And they're extremely small and they can actually crawl right in the flower and turn around. And so you may not even know they're in your fields, but they are also very efficient at pollinating flowers. And then there's a, uh, two more groups. One are called the leaf cutting bees, the Osmia leaf cutting bees, and they're a metallic blue bee to black bee. And they actually, you can notice them in the field because they carry their pollen, not on the, their legs like the other bees, but on their abdomen, on the underside of their abdomen. And they actually have a behavior where they stick their front of their body in the blueberry flower, and then they drum the anthers with their legs to release the pollen. So they yeah. also have this behavior that releases pollen, and then they get covered with pollen, and then the next flower they visit gets a good dose of pollen for pollination. And then the last bee we have is the honeybee. And this is not a native bee. Honeybees are commercially raised. They're usually rented, but, but a few growers have their own, but usually they're mm -hmm. rented from beekeepers. And unlike a lot of the native bees that evolved with blueberry, um, they tend to be accustomed to a little warmer temperatures. Generally, they start flying at 10 degrees centigrade, 50 degrees mm -hmm. Fahrenheit. But you know, if it's a really sunny day and the sun is beating on their hive, they will forage a little earlier, but usually it's around 50. And they are extremely inefficient pollinators on a bee basis. So okay. here's an example, a bumblebee queen visiting on a flower on average, after she visits a blueberry flower and gets herself dusted with pollen, she'll go to the next flower and she'll place 25 to 30 pollen grains in a single visit on that flower. Mm -hmm. That will result in a high chance, almost 100% chance of fruit. A honeybee 
because it doesn't have these behaviors to shake these anthers and dislodge pollen, on an average visit, it will only place three to five pollen grains on a blueberry flower. Well, I already mentioned to you that 12 pollen grains results in a 50% chance of that flower becoming a fruit. Mm -hmm. So honeybees need to visit a flower several times in order to get a good chance of pollination. But of course, the advantage of honeybees is numbers. It's a numbers game. Yeah. You know, you can put hundreds of thousands of bees in a field in an instant and have yeah. so many bees out there that inefficient as an individual, they're highly effective as a large colony. Yeah. And also they are raised by human beings. So you're able to carry them around with their hives to press them into this field and that field, this area and that area. So that might be the uh, evolution of what the human beings have done with the bees and the relationship between us and them, right? The introduction from you sounds like bumblebee is more efficient than honeybees, right? On a per bee basis, yes. So do they have different roles in terms of pollination in wild bee? I wouldn't say they have different roles, but they certainly work differently. So mm -hmm. one of the things that bumblebees and these sand digger bees I mentioned, the leaf cutting bees, and the sweat bees, many of them possess this behavior that's called floral constancy. And what it means is that once you have a, a mass flowering crop like blueberry, these bees focus only on blueberry, even if there is uh, other flowering plants at the same time. Honeybees are not always floral constant, and this is especially true in blueberry fields because they have such a hard time extracting pollen from blueberry plants. They can get nectar fine, but they have a hard time getting pollen, and they need pollen to feed their young in the mm -hmm. hive. Mm -hmm. And so if you have poor weed control or there's a wetlands right next to your field and there's lots of rhodora mm -hmm. and leather leaf and other flowering plants that's flowering at the same time as your blueberry. It may be the case that you've brought in 300,000 honeybees, but in any given time in the middle of the day, 190,000 are not in your field, but they're in the wet meadow. And mm -hmm. so that's one thing that's really important with honeybees is to manage your fields and be aware of what the surrounding landscape is so that you can maximize the likelihood that they're going to spend their time in your field and not okay. outside your fields. So, so that's one big difference between bumblebees and honeybees. They, mm -hmm. they actually can work well together in that bumblebees tend to visit a couple flowers on a plant and then they'll jump maybe, you know, three or four yards, visit a few more flowers, jump. And so they, they sort of visit 10 or 20 flowers and jump, 10 or 20 flowers and jump. Mm -hmm. Whereas the honeybees tend to go from stem to stem, visit one or two flowers, go to another one, visit one or two flowers, go to another stem that's a few inches away. And, mm -hmm. and so they do a more short hopping. The bumblebee does these big jumps and if you want to maximize outcrossing, 
doing big jumps. So going from one plant to another, because some of these clones are big plants, mm -hmm. then the bumblebees may be a little more efficient in getting outcrossing done. The honeybees will do it, especially as you leave one clone and go to the other, then they'll have sort of a supply of pollen from the clone they just left and they'll pollinate flowers, but they, they sort of work in concert. Whereas one bee is working fewer flowers within a clone and jumping around and the other bee is being really effective working sort of within the clone before it moves on to another. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're somewhat different in, in their, their sort of behaviors. Another thing, bumblebees, as I said, they'll, they'll start usually foraging at the crack of dawn. They'll forage when it's cooler. At least the queens will. Not always the commercial bumblebees that have very small bees in them. But as I said, the, the honeybees generally, they'll wait until after the sun is up, till it warms up in the spring, till it's at least 50 degrees, and then they'll uh, pollinate. And they may stop, stop flying earlier in the afternoon if the temperature drops. So, so they, they sometimes, you know, they sort of are foraging at different times. Mm -hmm. If you have real hot weather, which we've in Maine, we've had some days in, in May that end up being 80 degrees, many bumblebee queens will stop flying. It's too hot for them. And they, they can't cool themselves off. Whereas the honeybees just love it when it's that hot and they'll yeah. keep foraging. So, so each bee has its sort of own little niche that it's carved out. So we need all kinds of pollinators if you, if you in your field, you happen to have all those bees or certain kind of bees, that would be very helpful. Doesn't matter who they are, it's gonna be helpful for your production. Yes, that's actually yeah. one, one thing I found out doing some research in the laboratory. I found out that if honey, if bumblebees visit a flower, you know, they vibrate the flower so much that pollen just gets spread all over the flower and on other flowers. Then if a honeybee comes, it will pick up actually almost two to three times more pollen because it gets mm -hmm. contaminated by all that pollen that the bumblebee knocked out. So yeah. having them both together actually increases the efficiency of the honeybee. That's very interesting because you think they are doing their own thing, doing their own job, but they're actually kind of working together. You did research and observation, they kind of working together. So that's actually very uh, interesting there. I know we all, we talk about how important, how critical to have pollination in blueberries. Um, but sometimes people will still ask me or people to ask, do I have a need for commercial to bring in commercial honeybees? So what's your opinion on uh, to how to determine the need for commercial honeybees in the field? That's a great question. And in, in some ways, it, the, the actual, the answer might be different for each grower, but mm -hmm. The way you determine it is the same. So some fields have a natural abundance of native, native bees mm -hmm. to the point where, you know, they may be getting 40 to 50% fruit set. And for some, for some growers, um, that might be a level that uh, provides enough yield for them based on their market that for them, there's no need to bring in commercial honeybees. But one thing every grower should remember that relies solely on native bees is that like all wild animals, their numbers go up and down from year to year. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And so you may have some years where you have a tremendous number of native bees and get really high levels of fruit set. And other years, maybe because of an extremely cold winter or drought the, the, the summer before, where the numbers of wild bees are very low and you might only get 20% fruit set and have a horrible yield at harvest. Mm -hmm. And so even those growers that just rely on native bees may want to sometimes balance out the pollination so that they have less risk from year to year. But so the way to do this is actually to go into your field during bloom and to actually measure the amount of fruit set that you're getting. And the way we usually do this is tell growers to go from anywhere from six to 10 locations in their field. And at each location, if you only have six locations, um, tie a little string or a little ribbon around five stems. And if you have 10 locations, you could tie a ribbon around three stems in each location. And then you actually count once the bud clusters open and you can count the number of individual flowers and you can wait until they open, count the numbers of flowers on a stem. And some stems, as you know, can have over 200 flowers. Mm -hmm. And so if you have stems that have that many flowers on them, you might tie a little string at the quarter top of the stem and count that. So you can count, you know, maybe 30 flowers or 50 flowers because you want something that you can count without error. Mm -hmm. And we advise them to count and record the number three times. And if they get the same number, fine, but usually they won't. So, so you average that because maybe you might get, you know, 31 flowers the first time, 34 the second and 29 the third. And so you average that and you do that at all your locations. And then you come back about, depending on temperature, a week to two weeks after petal fall. So quite a bit after the initial fruit set, but after the calyx has started to swell, so you know that, you know, you've got berries, that, that that flower was set. And then you count the number of, of berries, potential berries. And, or you can even wait a little until they just start to have a little pink uh, haze to them, these berries. They're not quite ripe yet. And you count them. And then you calculate the percentage of, of berries from those flowers. And you should do this several different years so you can get an idea if your fruit set is is fluctuating if it's not and usually a high level of fruit set is considered 60 percent that's excellent a good fruit okay. set is 50 and anything lower than 50 is kind of marginal or poor i say 70 percent. you can get fruit sets close to 100 but usually what happens, many of those berries are dropped during fruit drop. It's unusual for a plant to hold that many. And okay. so you start out with maybe 100% and you get down to about 70% berries that you end up harvesting. So 70% okay. is considered really good. Yeah. So from that, you can figure out yourself whether you have poor, average, good, or excellent fruit set, and then whether you should be bringing in honeybees. Okay. In addition, I have a, uh, a video on the Wild Blueberry website in Maine that tells growers how to estimate the number of bees on the bloom, mm -hmm. both native bees, but also honeybees. 
And that allows growers to know not only if, if, you, if you estimate fruit set, you can estimate the number of bees. And if you do this several years in a row, you can find out, well, is most of this fruit set I have from native bees? Is it from the mm -hmm. honeybees? Um, are the honeybees, even though I'm bringing in 20 hives, do I, do I see lots of honeybees on the bloom? And you can actually calculate the fruit set from the numbers of bees that you record mm -hmm. in one square yard plots that you set out in the field. And okay. so I have a video on how to do this. So there are two methods that growers can use to get a good handle on whether they should invest in commercial bees, whether commercial bumblebees or commercial honeybees. Okay. And you also wrote a very good fact sheet on honeybees and blueberry pollination. So mm -hmm. when I post this video or this podcast, I will include both links along with this podcast so people can go to visit the radio you are talking about and also this excellent fact sheets you have there. Yeah. So, so when you determine I need to bring in honeybees into my field and can girls just bring the hives in and put them anywhere they want or there's an optimum location for high placement to bait, best facilitate maximum pollination. What are your thoughts on that? Where should growers put their hives in the field? Well, it ends up being one of practicality. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, so if we're just talking about honeybees, when you put honeybee hives in a field, uh, generally, what happens is if, let's say if you can picture putting the honeybees on just one edge of your field and you have stacked, you know, 50 colonies on one edge of the field, what you will get, you will get this slow wave of honeybees moving from the hive slowly out, pollinating your field and the numbers of bees will drop off as you get farther and farther and farther away from the hives. And so what will usually happen is you'll have much higher intensity pollination closer to the hives. And depending on the number of hives you get, uh, you have, it will drop off at the very, very far end. This is if you're in an isolated field, there are no fields next to you, no other honeybees next to you, but you know, this is sort of this really hypothetical, a single field that's isolated and you have them all stacked up. Mm -hmm. So in that case, either you want to bring in more honeybees that you may need so that those far ends of the fields get visited because uh, even though the honeybees visit the flowers first, right near the colonies, they will still continue to visit those every day because you'll have new flowers blooming throughout the bloom system, uh, you know, season. So they'll be visiting them and it will take them a while to move out. They will move out, but not as many. And so optimally, the best thing that you could do is break, let's say your 50 colonies into 10 groups of five, or if they're mm -hmm. on, on pallets of, of six colonies, then, you know, is sort of spread your pallets throughout your field. Of course, you know, Practically, that might not be possible because number one, uh, you may not have roads all over your field and you may not want to drive all over your bloom with a big truck dropping off beehives. Uh, number two, if you're in an area where there are bears and there are real threat, um, it's going to be a lot harder to protect uh, 10 groups of five hives than one big group of hives. 
Also, many beekeepers, if they're dropping off the bees, they come at night, it's gonna be harder for them to see where to go. And so it becomes less practical. Ideally, <laughs> what some people say is that, you know, the best possible optimal arrangement is to spread, spread the hives in small groups equally throughout your field. And then about every seven to 10 days, move them a little bit still in that mm -hmm. field because sometimes the hives get fixed on other floral sources outside the field. But I said, that's usually not practical. And so if mm -hmm. you can even find two locations in your field, that will be better than one. And also if, if for the beekeeper, it's better because if they concentrate their hives, there's going to be a lot more drifting between the hives. And so Varroa mite will get spread more and diseases. They'll be fighting between the colonies. So mm -hmm. anytime you can spread the colonies out, the better. Okay. Now, if you're a grower and you're renting both bumblebees and honeybees, the two do not mix. And this would be a situation where you would want to put the bumblebees on one edge of your field and the honeybees on the other. Because what will happen is the honeybees, anybody who's been out in a field, you can smell both honeybee colonies, but you can smell bumblebee hives. That's why the bears are attracted to them. But the honeybees can also smell it. And the honeybees will just hover outside the entrance of the bumblebee colony. And they'll want to go in there and try to steal honey and pollen from the bumblebee colony. But in order to protect it, the bumblebees will stay at home. And they won't be foraging in your blueberry field. They'll be trying to protect their colonies from the honeybees. And so you don't want to put your honeybees right next to bumblebees because you'll yeah. reduce the flight activity, the bumblebees will still fly early in the morning and later in the evening, mm -hmm. but in the middle of the, of the day at peak honeybee foraging time, they're going to shut those bumblebee colonies right down. So yeah. that's another thing to keep in mind when yeah. you're planting your honeybee colonies. And do you think putting those hives in the uh, sunny area would be helpful as well? As you mentioned, honeybees tend to like the higher temperature, 10 degree. So in blueberry fields, you always have those shady area, sunny area. Do you think that's a factor to, con to be considered as well? Oh yeah, yeah, it makes yeah. a big difference. So yeah. I know, you know, I have a couple of apiaries here and I know that the hives that are shaded in the morning get started, you know, an hour later. In yeah. the morning. It can make a big difference. If you have a coolish morning um, yeah. and the sun is on that colony, um, you know, they may start forging at seven o'clock where the shaded ones won't start until eight, eight thirty. So yeah. it, it, you know, for 25 days, maybe that you have those honeybees on bloom, <laughs> that all adds up. <laughs> so yeah. uh, it may seem trivial. Oh, yeah. it's only an hour, you know, but yeah, I would say if you have the option of putting them in the shade, or putting them in the sunshine, put them in the sunshine. Sometimes yeah. people don't. Sometimes the sunny places are near a road where school children are walking to get the bus. And yes. you don't want to have a stack of honeybees right next to where the public is walking. So, you know, there are constraints, but if you can. Yeah. So how do you assess the success of pollination in wild blueberries? Is there a pollination rate or pollination observation to determine this? Well, I, I think really what I had mentioned to you about estimating fruit set is the first step. So estimating fruit mm -hmm. set. And then of course, mm -hmm. you know, the biggest 
<laughs> and the most confident measure of success is your yield. Okay. So I would say that the best way to do that is to measure fruit set and then, and then you know, keep records on fruit set and the yield. Um, mm -hmm. Because also if, if it ends up that you're getting high pollination fruit set, but you know, only sort of average yields, then it, the grower may want to sort of look at, well, am I getting a lot of, you know, fruit drop? Am I getting, you know, do I have a lot of mummy berry or botrytis that I'm not seeing? Or am I, you know, losing more than I want to when I'm harvesting? But mm -hmm. I, I think, I think that's sort of the best way to do it is, is really to walk your fields, to listen to the hum of the bees, to look at bees during bloom, to make sure that you see bees and then to measure fruit set. Okay. And for people that do that, for growers that do that, they usually have a pretty darn good handle of whether they're getting successful pollination. That's good. So is there a, a critical numbers to tell the growers if my pollination rate or fruit set is below, say, I don't know, 30, 40%, then it, it gives you an indication of, okay, I, my pollination force is too low. As you mentioned, I think you have those numbers, 50, 60. So can I say maybe below 50% uh, that is too low for the um, uh, pollination force? I would say for a grower who is an intensive commercial grower that sells either to processors or, or has a, you know, a market where they need to produce high numbers of berries, then, then yeah, I would say 50% is probably something that, you know, 50% is good, but that's probably the level where they, they really probably don't want to drop down below. Mm -hmm. on, the, on the flip side, we have, we have lots of organic growers here in Maine that usually they're not even able to sell their entire yield. And so for them to try to, you know, encourage them to push pollination and get 70% fruit set with 30%, they may be selling almost all of their crop and for them making a, a fairly good profit if they have a good market. So, so it's, it's sort of really dependent on the operation and how, especially how capital intensive they are. Mm -hmm. But I would say if, if you've invested lots of money in weed control, in insect control, in fertility, then it only makes sense to invest a little more in commercial bees to increase your fruit set and potential yield so that all of those other investments pay off mm -hmm. because it makes no sense to invest all those other management practices and yet have poor fruit set. So I would say okay. they should really be shooting for 70%, you know, okay. if, you know, they're intensive grower. For someone yeah. who's maybe moderately intensive, who maybe, you know, maybe doesn't do any pathogen control, does a little bit of insect control, but maybe does a lot of weed control, but, but maybe, you know, sort of 50 to 60% for them is fine, but they still, yeah. they still may need honeybees to get there because yes. the, the native bees aren't, aren't providing that. In Maine, we found on average, native bees will give you 25 to 30% fruit set. There are some fields that are much higher. And then there are some fields that the native bees are only contributing five to 10%. You know, it varies mm -hmm. tremendously, but yeah. So that's sort of what I have to say. No, <laughs> thank you. So I hope I didn't run over. <laughs> oh no, it's fine. Thank you so much for 
all those information. I think we have a great discussion and we covered a lot of great areas about pollination and this will give our growers, you know, in many times in Canada, lots of good information to, to look into um, their management practice. So thank you so much for, for this talk. Thank you. You're welcome, Hugh. Pollination is one of the most important components of wild blueberry production. In order to achieve a higher pollination rate and better fruit set, it is important to do things that favor the effectiveness of pollinators, including rational use of pesticides during pollination season. Please make sure when you apply pesticides, check the product labels and make sure products have no risks to bees and other pollinators during pollination season. If you are interested to hear more conversation about beekeeping and pollination, please check out another Pioneers podcast, What's the Buzz with Atta, hosted by the Atlantic Tech Transfer Team for Apiculture. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Follow me on Twitter at NSYLBlue and follow Pioneer on Facebook and Twitter at NSPioneer. Thank you for your support from Pioneer and Wild Brewery Producers Association of Nova Scotia for this podcast. A big thank you to Patty Ryan, Marketing Design Lead, and Rachel Oxner, Marketing and Communication Officer in Pioneer. Their support on podcast emission and editing is well appreciated. If you like our podcast, please subscribe and share. Have a good pollination season.